So in 2008, I attended a conference in Atlanta, Georgia called the Catalyst Conference. And there were 10,000 pastors in this arena wanting to become better leaders. Now, come on, you know some churches in America, maybe you're here and you think the same thing. Churches that would be like, hey, pastor, there's this gathering in Atlanta and you can be a better leader. We'll pay for you to go there. So there were 10,000 of us uh, wanting to become better leaders and better shepherds. And this particular conference featured a very young 28-year-old Stephen Furtick, who is the pastor of Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. In 2006, he started this church and 121 people showed up the first Sunday. And then a year and a half later, that had become over 4,000 people. And so he was invited to speak at this conference. And this is what he said, and I quote, I was nobody sitting in the nosebleed seats last year, and now I'm speaking on the platform. It was the quintessential American rags to riches story. Um, The subtle message, of course, that was also being spoken in the conference was, who knows, maybe next year this could be you, you on the platform, any one of you with enough determination and hard work. In America, we love rags to riches stories, don't we? We love this myth. It's the Mary Kay lady whose husband was an attorney and cheated on her, so she had to strike out on life on her own. And just three years later, she's making $3 for every $1 he earns. Ha <laughs> ha, take that, hubby. It's the uh, kid living in the trailer park who practiced free throws over and over and over again, and it gets him a scholarship into the University of Kentucky. And then that opens the door for him to play in the NBA. It's the computer geek who starts a social media network on his college campus only to have everyone on the planet use it a decade later. And the, the basic rags to riches story that America likes to tell is some version of, I was nobody, I had nothing, but with some hard work and determination, now I'm a success. Look at what I've accomplished. And we in the church will use God language. We'll just say, look at how God has used me, right? Um, in the Bible, uh, who builds the church, by the way? In the Bible, say it out loud, Josh. God builds the church. Jesus builds his church, okay? So rags to riches is actually not a Jesus thing. It's not a kingdom thing. It's not a gospel thing. With Jesus, the way up is down. If you want to gain life, you give it away. Um, And you gain most by giving away what you cannot keep. In 2009, Tim Keller told his congregation in New York City, and I quote, we want to feel beautiful. We want to feel loved. We want to feel significant. And that's why we are working so hard. Uh, The people that he pastored on that island of Manhattan, he said, had lived their whole lives with parents, music teachers, coaches, professors, and bosses telling them, do better, be better, try harder. And in America, just like ancient Rome, we applaud and we celebrate the achievers, the rich, and the beautiful, don't we? Uh, Is it any wonder so many Americans labor and work hard to obtain enough success, enough popularity, enough stuff to convince themselves and everybody else that they are somebody. Henry Nouwen, 
uh, years ago, came out with a book called In the Name of Jesus. It's actually one of the three textbooks I require in my intro to ministry class that I teach for Asbury University, In the Name of Jesus. And I make students read this book because, in my opinion, Henry Nouwen just hits the nail on the head. Nouwen says that every one of us Americans, we have this line that goes from birth to death, and there's this line of our life. And over the course of the line of our life, we're asking a fundamental question, who am I? Who am I? And because we're Americans, we tend to root that identity in one of three places. What I do, what others say of me, or what I have. Or we do it in a combination of those. What I do, this is all of my Chamber of Commerce meetings. Hi, I'm Max. Hi, I'm Bob. Hey, Max, what do you do? <gasps> and then we, you know, well, and so some of us have impressive. I'm a, the director. I'm the regional rep. Uh, I'm the head of nursing. I'm a popular author. I'm the starting lineup on the varsity team this year. I'm a goalie. I'm a musician. I am what I do. Uh, and then there's the what others say of me. Oh, man, you're so pretty. Or, man, you're slow. Or, <laughs> uh, you are such a blessing. Golly, you are such a drain. Why are you such a Debbie Downer? And so, if people say positive things about us, like we walk a little taller and we feel a little better, and then when people are crushing us with their words, we're kind of hunched over and on the inside, we're feeling terrible. Uh, by the way, studies bear this out. Among high-performing employees, the ratio of positive to negative is six to one. And among healthy families, the ratio of positive to negative is 10 to one. 10 to one. So we root our identity in what we do, in what others say of us, and in what we have. If we have a nice house, if we have a good job, if we have our health, a good family, we're doing great. But if we lose one of those things, we're crushed. We're depressed. So much energy goes into these three areas. So much of our lives are spent trying to root our identity, our worth, our value, our meaning in them, which means that life is a series of ups and downs. And now and warns that when we live this way, we spend all of our energy trying to stay above the line with what we do, above the line with what others say of us, above the line with what we have. What a waste of time. What a waste of time. I, I've been thinking about this. If this is where identity is rooted, it's bunk. It's bunk. Come on. First of all, if you are what you do, what happens when you retire? What happens when your arthritis prevents you from fixing cars like you've done your whole life? Are you now a nobody, useless to be discarded? Yesterday at the Lone Oak Pool, I was helping the head coach do some cleanup, and this older couple walk in, and they're in their 70s, and they're looking for a pool to join because their neighborhood pool closed. And she makes this offhand comment because they were talking about how their pool and club, you know, they were feeling irrelevant. And she said, just like church. And I wasn't going to let that go. I said, I'm sorry, did you just say that you were irrelevant when it comes to church? And she said, oh, yeah, we're not young. And I said, you are upright and sucking wind. I said, have you discovered that Jesus is the son of God? She said, oh, yes. I said, well, <laughs> you're not irrelevant. Like, and so we, there was a hearty discussion we had by the pool deck just because of one offhand comment. But 
She verbalized it. Now that we're in our 70s, we don't feel that we have any value, right? Um, and then secondly, if, our, if we are uh, what others say of us, well, that's bunk too. Um, Daniel Richardson is a researcher at the University of College uh, London, and he conducted a series of uh, studies where he asked people uh, yes or no questions, one or two questions. Things like, uh, should Great Britain leave the European Union? Uh, if you're out with a group of friends and you treat everyone to the meal, should you be allowed to get a bigger portion or a bigger share of the food? So he asked all these questions, right? And when he did it blind, in other words, they were just responding, the answers were as diverse as they are people. But then he had them answer questions where they were all in front of a screen individually and they could see all of the people participating at the same time, represented as dots in the middle. And as he asked the question, if there was a big conglomeration of dots at one of the answers, the people who had answered the opposite would move their dots over to where all the other dots were. What? Yes, this is what he concluded. When people interact, they end up agreeing and they make worse decisions. They don't share information, they share biases. By the way, that's social media, <laughs> okay? And lastly, what you have isn't yours to keep anyway. Think for a moment about the one thing that is your favorite thing that you get to own. What it, like, it's okay to love some things that you own from time to time, right? So what are some things that you love? Some things that it's your favorite thing of all the things that you own. And I'll, I'll go first. Mine is my kayak, your puppy, okay? What are some other things that are the favorite thing you own? Lego collection. I love my Lego collection. Not as much as my kayak, but it's, it's there, right? So a couple of other things that you love. Cats, okay? Video games, yeah. So... We've been blessed with things, but here's the thing. If I am what I own, it's silly because my favorite thing is my kayak. And if I'm honest about myself, if I live long enough, I will eventually give that kayak away, will I not? I won't be able to get out in the boat anymore if I live long enough, right? And so I'm going to be giving it away anyway. And when I die, I can't take my kayak with me. And no, I'm not going to ask that it be buried with me, okay? Right? <laughs> not going to happen. It's going to be given away, okay? And all of that, all of that brings me to Jesus. Jesus was born to an unknown family. He was the son of a common carpenter. He spent his childhood in Nazareth, a backwater town of no significance. He received no formal education. There was absolutely nothing about Jesus' upbringing that would have caused anybody to say, this boy's got a future. This boy here, right here, he's going to change the world. Ordinary person, ordinary family, ordinary upbringing. And so when the time came for Jesus to be baptized, he went to the Jordan River uh, to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptizer. Okay? And that's where we're going to be today in Matthew's Gospel, chapter, at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. Matthew tells us this. After Jesus' baptism... As Jesus came out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son, who brings me great joy. In other words, God is saying, 
Jesus, this is who you are. This identity is going to allow you to live a life in a world where people will praise you, where people will follow you, and where people will reject you, and people will literally spit on you. You are loved, not because of what you've done, not because of what others are already saying about you, not, and certainly not because of anything that you have. <laughs> you're loved because you're my one and only son. And look at what happens next. He's tempted. He's tempted. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told them, no, no. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Turn this stone into bread. Do something, Jesus. Use your power for your benefit. You're hungry, aren't you? Just look at what you can do. And Jesus uses scripture to rebut the devil. Then there's another interchange, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold, up, they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Jump off, Jesus. Everyone will be amazed. People will talk. Think of all the buzz. And if they had had social media back then, the devil would have said, you'll be viral. <laughs> okay? Just, right? Don't you want to be loved and admired by the masses, Jesus? And again, Jesus uses scripture to rebut the devil. And then there's the final interchange, verse 8. Next, the devil took Jesus to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. In other words, bow before me now, Jesus, and you can get it all without the cross, without suffering. You can have it all without the sacrifice. And the accuser went away because Jesus knew who he was. I am God's beloved. I am loved. And that sense of belovedness, it sent Jesus out and it sends us out. Immediately after the temptation, Jesus goes home to Nazareth where he takes out the scroll of Isaiah and he reads this passage and it's in Luke chapter four. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. When you know that you're loved, you can give yourself away. And it's why Jesus was able to do the unthinkable. And it's recorded in John's gospel, at the end of John's gospel in chapter 13. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. 
Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. Jesus knew that he had authority over what? What did Jesus have authority over? Everything. Everything. You and I can't even fathom that. He had authority over everything. Jesus knew where he had come from. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in mutual love and interdependence. And he knew he was returning back to that. And that knowledge and that security enabled him to take up the towel and basin, something that none of his friends, none of his disciples were secure enough to do. This is how it often plays out with service, by the way. Get your hands dirty. It's on the wall. If you struggle on the inside with identity, it's going to be very hard to give your life away, to give yourself in service to other people because you're always going to be worried that they think less of you, that they're thinking of you in the hierarchy of people. But when your identity is secure and you know that you are loved by God and that God has given you everything and that you don't want for anything in your life, it opens up the door internally for you able to do things where it doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what people, how people see you. It's a very freeing thing. And that kind of service turns the world upside down. It changes people because again, most people live life by the, I am valuable because of what I do, because of what others say of me, because of what I have. And when your identity is secure and tucked away in the hidden place with God, it's a curiosity. It's an anomaly. It's different. It sticks out. I think the brilliance of Henry Nouwen's teaching on this subject is his assertion that what is said of Jesus Christ is said of you and me. Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Psalm 139, 13, I knitted you together in your mother's womb. So in light of this, in light of this, um, let me ask a question. Who am I? That's the question I want you to ask of yourself. Who am I? Do I want to spend the rest of my life chasing meaning and significance from what I do, from what others say of me, and from what I have? That's a long chase. That is a long chase. So how can we go about to really embrace this identity, to own this identity, to have it rooted? I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but there's no substitute for scripture intake reading it, hearing it, getting it in your head, and then memorizing. There's probably a hundred key verses in this Bible that should be committed to memory so that when you're in that moment of discouragement, when you're having those thoughts, like Jesus, it rolls right off the tip of your tongue because it's there, it's tucked away, it's stored for those moments of great need when you're needing to hear what God says. And by the way, I think this is so important because the Bible is God's word. God has spoken through his word. God speaks through his word and God will speak through his word. And so, and what God says is true. What God names is reality. It's just how things are. And so when I'm walking and thinking in agreement with God, I'm in sync with reality. 
Trust me, when you're out of sync with reality, it's bad, it's rough. <laughs> it harms you, okay? So scripture intake. The, the wrong approach to this is what I, what I heard when I was young. Max, what's the bare minimum about scripture that I need to know or do? <clears throat> wrong approach, <laughs> wrong approach. The right approach is, what can I feed my mind so that I truly live? Jesus said, he had the, you know, the, what is it the disciples said? You alone have the words of life, <laughs> right? Okay, so again, scripture intake, whether that's reading it, hearing it, uh, listening to it, and then certain verses. And if you want, I'll give you the, that list of 100 verses. There's 100 key verses that are probably good to have just committed to memory for those moments and times when you need them. The second way that we can kind of embrace this um, Jesus-infused identity is to really observe the Sabbath. One day a week where we're not doing and producing and rustling and running and hurrying and all that other kind of stuff. Um, this is the hallmark that set apart the Jews. This is what caused them to be a stench in the, in the nostrils of their Roman neighbors. Oh, aren't you special, Micah? You get to stop everything once a week. Must be nice. The rest of the Roman Empire goes on, baby. Like uh, Romans hated and despised the Jews for many different reasons, and this was one of them. This was one of them. America today is just like Rome in so many ways. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you, America is so like Rome in so many ways. And one of the ways that we are like Rome is that we just don't stop. We go, 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 go. And stopping and ceasing and taking a real Sabbath. See, you cannot hear God's voice in the middle of the whirlwind, in the middle of the frenzied, hurried lives that we're living today. Where did Elijah hear God's voice? In the thunder, in the rain? No, in the still, small voice. And the last thing is making a decision to actually follow Jesus. It includes this repent and believe, repent and believe. The prodigal son knew that he wasn't good enough. In the, the story that Jesus tells about the prodigal son, the prodigal son came to a point where he realized, I've blown it. Boy, I've messed up. This was dumb. I'm dumb. The whole thing was dumb. What was I thinking me? So he, he reaches that moment. And when he goes back to his father, did his father respond with, well, at least the idiot had the horse sense to come back, right? Was that the, the take of his father? No. The father gave him a robe, a ring, and a party. Romans 6, verses 3 through 5, put it this way. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Jesus Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father... Now we also may live new lives. Since we've been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. Paul's making this claim that what is true of Jesus is and will be true of us. Okay? Paul is saying that when you repent and believe, you're united in Christ. And so that what God says in Matthew chapter 3, this is my beloved that's now what God says of you because God is looking at you in a sense through the eyes of Jesus. He's seeing Jesus when he looks at you. This is my beloved. 
in whom I'm well pleased, right? It's why the earliest Christians called this whole thing the good news, and it's why angels proclaimed to the shepherds that they had the good news that would bring great joy to all people. I know too many people in Jessamine County today, just like New York, who uh, have parents and music teachers and coaches and professors and bosses telling them, do better. This is a school district, do better. Get, your, get those scores up, be better, try harder. Um, it is the yoke of American success. It is the yoke of American success. If you wanna be somebody, if you wanna be important, and it, if you wanna be loved, you better do, you better impress, you better acquire. I call it the temptation to perform, impress, and possess. The temptation to perform, impress, and possess. But it's a heavy yoke. It is a heavy yoke. Not only do the people who fail get crushed, so I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna get into the NBA and you don't get into the NBA. Or I'm gonna get into this college and you don't get into the college. I'm gonna land this job, this promotion, and it doesn't happen, so you're crushed. Or you do something or say something and everybody's giving you grief on social media and everywhere else. You're just a terrible person. I can't believe, you know, blah, 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 right? And then you get to a point in your life and you realize, well, I don't have all the things I thought I would have. You know, I'm such a failure. Like, so the, the yoke of American success like crushes the failures, but here's what nobody seems to realize. It crushes the victors. You achieve, you become a multi-billionaire, you acquire and have people give you accolades, you have the 10,000 square foot mansion, it crushes them on the inside. I've met these people, I've spoken to these people. They're not living their best life. <laughs> there is a crushing quality. So the American yoke crushes those who fail and crushes those who succeed. But there is a better way. There's a better way. Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Years ago, when I was an associate pastor at the Mothership Church of the Savior, we had a young lady who had sailed through college, straight A student, 4-0. Uh, she had all kinds of opportunities for grad school, and she was getting ready to leave to one of the stands, you know, like Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, all the best places in the world that you just think to yourself, I want to live there. Like, <laughs> I'm going to go to one of the stands. It'll be great. And so she was working this job, and everyone that she worked with was like, why are you throwing your life away. Why would you do this? You have so much going for you. You could take the next step, like the next, the doors are open. And it provided tremendous opportunity for her to bear witness. I'm called. Jesus called me. Jesus cares about these people here. And I'm going to take the good news of what God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ to these people in the no place stand. <laughs> and it, the, the people at, as a result, over the period of like six weeks, we began seeing people from her workplace show up at church. They wanted to know what would cause somebody to abandon the American thing of success. They wanted to know, okay? And there it is, there it is. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. 
Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light.